You're going to miss this, aren't you? I am. I Aww. I have to, um, you know, have all the recordings on, on a loop uh, every Thursday or so, two o'clock or so. Well, you can get this podcast wherever you get your norm. You know, you can listen anytime you want. I was hoping, I was hoping that'd be the case. Subscribe. Oh, okay. Like. Review. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a federal court judge heard arguments this week in a case brought by the ACLU of Louisiana against several individuals at a neighborhood security district, accusing them of racially profiling three juveniles in the Garden District in 2020. A nonprofit organization, the Water Collaborative of Greater New Orleans, is proposing to replace the way the Sewerage and Water Board of New Orleans is funded so it's more equitable, forming what they're calling a water justice fund. And a local school grappling with financial concerns approved a hefty salary for its CEO if the school can keep up its grades. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hey, Josh. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Brett Barakare. Hi, Brett. Hey, how y'all doing? Good. All right, Nick, first up with you in criminal justice this week in federal court, a judge is hearing arguments in a case brought as part of the ACLU of Louisiana's Justice Lab, which revolves around a stop conducted in June of 2020 by two officers who were working a paid detail for the Hurstville Security District in Uptown New Orleans. Tell us what the case is about. Yeah, so as you said, the case revolves around a traffic stop. Um, Several young black kid males um, that their ages were 18, 21, and 12 were out searching for a lost dog. Um, they had been, you know, hanging out at one of their parents' houses. They discovered this dog was missing and went out to drive around and look for it. Um, and they came across this security district officer, and we can kind of get into what security districts are uh, later on, but, but this police officer um, who uh, had on an Orleans uh, Levy District police uniform they came up to him and said, hey, we're looking for this lost dog. Um, could, could you let us know if you see it? And one of the kids says uh, he allegedly gave, gave this officer his home address and said, you know, um, help us out. This officer um, didn't believe the kids. He basically thought they were, um, you know, making up a story. He thought they were acting somewhat suspicious. Um, so after these kids drove off, he ran the, the tags on the car. He noticed it was uh, registered to a house in New Orleans East, which was um, far away from where they were in Uptown. Um, and he called another officer who was also working this uh, this paid detail with the security district. And so the two officers eventually tracked, tracked this car down. The kids were driving around in a, in a black BMW, uh, allegedly driving pretty slowly, which, you know, would maybe make sense if they were searching for a lost dog. But... The officers pulled them over, um, and there's some dispute as to what happens next. Um, the kids say that the officers both pulled guns on them and and ordered the driver to get out of the car. Um, and you know, after after running the the driver's uh, address, realizing that that 
it matched up to this New Orleans East address and that that things sort of checked out mm. um, and he eventually let them go. Um, the the officers did not deny having drawn guns. They say that they, you know, shined flashlights and 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 did order the driver to get out of the car, but says that that neither of them actually drew their weapons. But ultimately, one of the one of the passengers in the car, Bilal Hankins, who is an 18 year old, filed filed a lawsuit against against these officers with the ACLU, um, alleging that the the stop was actually motivated um, and that by drawing their weapons, the officers used excessive force. Um, to provide some context, this was just weeks after uh, George Floyd's death. There was, you know, that there was a time when when there was a lot of tension between between law enforcement and, yep. and citizens. Um, a lot of people were on edge, and you know, Bilal has said that this incident caused him, you know, extreme anxiety, and he was having nightmares, and and you know, um, w- was really shaken up by it. Um, so that that was kind of the basis of the lawsuit, and now we're we're two years on, and and we had this uh, hearing on it just just this week. Okay, talk about what these security districts are. How do they work? So they're set up by state law, and they are funded by taxpayer property taxes in a specific district. And mostly, what these these security districts do is hire law enforcement officers that work for separate law enforcement agencies. Um, so in this case, there was a, a Orleans levy district officer, as I said, and a housing authority of new Orleans, um, officer. And so they weren't working their normal shifts with those agencies. They were hired, they were being hired specifically by this, this security district. So it's kind of a quasi public private, um, uh, mashup and some of the issues that are, that are raised here, I mean, is one, you have these officers that are, you know, policing in New Orleans with kind of the full force of the law, but who's responsible for them is is kind of an open question mm-hmm. and, that, and one that's been raised because the Hertzville Security District that hired them says, we basically rely on these other agencies to train and supervise and monitor them. These other agencies say, you know, they're off duty, they're working a paid detail, what what they do during that time that, that's not our you know responsibility the new orleans police department has been under a, a federal consent decree for for years and their conduct is overseen by you know a federal judge and monitors um and a very specific set of policies that have been approved by those those individuals these security district officers do not operate under under those um that oversight and that that's true of you know the agencies they work for in general the orleans levy district and uh, Hanno also. So, you know, that it's not totally unique to the security districts, but um, kind of adds another element of, you know, these officers are, are operating in New Orleans as police officers, but without that extra oversight. This would be a way for them to backdoor in certain people and policies that, that don't conform with the the conduct that's expected under the federal consent decree. Right. And so Kevin Wheeler, who was the officer who was approached by the kids in the first place and who, you know, kind of instigated the stop, was actually fired by the New Orleans Police Department right. in 2012 um, and then hired eventually by the by the levy district and, and um, you know, was was then working for Hertzville. So that's kind of yeah, it's part of the broader context of of this um, lawsuit. It doesn't exactly, you know, 
the critique of security districts that that the ACLU is making in terms of, you know, there are these kind of private patrols that richer neighborhoods generally are are the ones that um, set these things up. And they're a private police force for a very specific group of people. Right. Um, and with, as we said, limited oversight. And when you think about those issues arising, and Nick, I'm, I'm sure you're going to get into this about you know, account when accountability comes to mind here and conduct, like you're talking about not having to conform to certain policies that the police department does. But then when it comes to conduct and that, you know, that evaluation and oversight of their interactions with the public, there's not an established, you know, um, equivalent to the public integrity bureau that, you know, New Orleanians can make a complaint about if they have an interaction with an on-duty, you know, police officer. Right. No, that's, that's absolutely true. And I, you know, there were each of the the both Hanno and uh, the Orleans Levy District did end up doing an investigation of this this incident, um, but uh, Bilal's mother and, and Bilal both really it took them a long time to to figure out what happened to figure out who they needed to contact mm. to issue a complaint. Um, as you said, kind of this infrastructure that that we have with the with the NOPD. Um, certainly isn't perfect, but but exists where where it's clear kind of how to how to make these complaints and who's uh, who's in charge. So the remedy at this point, Nick, as far as they see it, is this civil lawsuit that's filed on their behalf by this ACLU Louisiana, the Justice Lab, against these individuals, but also against the private security firm, or not? Yeah. So. The, the individuals are named uh, several uh, several supervisors in in kind of all three agencies at the Hertzville Security District, um, in the Orleans Levy Police Department, and in the Hano Police Department, who they say should have should have been taking a greater role in training and supervising these officers are also named, and then um, the agencies themselves. Okay, and what happened in the hearing? So this was a motion for summary judgment okay. that was filed by the officers. Um, and the argument that they were making is that they are entitled to something called qualified immunity, which would shield the officers from liability um, while they're doing their official duties. And the, the standard for qualified immunity is one, did they violate the constitutional rights of, of these kids or, or young, you know, young men? Um, and within that category, it's kind of a question of one, was this stop unconstitutional on its face? Um, and w if and when they pulled guns, was that unconstitutional? Um, so lawyers for the, the officers have argued basically ne neither one was unconstitutional. They argue, first of all, that the stop was totally reasonable, that, you know, these kids were driving around slowly in a car that was was you know, registered in, in Uptown, that there had been car burglaries and carjackings in the neighborhood previously, and that this was, you know, a, a reasonable stop. Um, lawyers for Bilal with the, and with the ACLU have said that totally ignores the fact that these kids came to you first, first and said, we're searching for this lost dog, which would then totally explain kind of the actions that, that, you know, the officers. Right. Like engaged. we're going to be, Hey, we're going to be driving around. Just, this is what we're doing. Maybe you right. could help look for the dog. Or if you see the dog, like grab the dog. 
exactly. how, how many how many burglars have ever you know on, uh, of their own volition approached police officers before you know before during or after whatever committing a burglary and volunteered that kind of information of like you know hey don't don't worry about us we're just going to be we, we lost a dog you know is that is that like is that a typical is that um is that a pattern of some kind that burglars have employed in the past i you know it's a good question <laughs> not that i'm aware of um you know the office the officer yeah told investigators later that that he thought this was kind of a ruse that they were you know maybe kind of trying to pull an over by approach first yeah um so so there's that aspect of it and then you know, like I said, both officers denied having drawn their weapons, but the their lawyers argued at this stage in the proceedings um, that even if they had pulled their weapons, that was reasonable as well. Mm. That it was, you know, late at night, that they didn't really know what these kids are up to. Lots of people are armed in this city. And that, you know, drawing your weapons and, and approaching a vehicle was not a, a, a constitutional violation. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, the, the lawyers for the kids kind of made the similar argument saying they already had an interaction where that was, you know, totally innocuous and, and, and you know, non-confrontational. There was no reason to believe that, that anything was going to happen. Um, so that's sort of what the judge is weighing right now is whether or not either of these actions violated the Constitution. And then there also is another kind of element to the qualified immunity standard, which is whether or not those things are established law at the time that they take place. So basically any officer needed to have a reasonable understanding that what they were doing was unconstitutional. So even if the judge determines that, that in fact, those things were, they also have to determine whether or not the case law has kind of established that already. Are there any issues with qualified immunity? I don't, I don't know if the proper way to say it is like transferring to working a private detail and working for that neighborhood security district or is, is that's a good question. I'm, I guess I'm assuming it's the same standard. There was there weren't really any arguments kind of tying the, the um, doctrine itself to whether or not they were working security details versus, um, but yeah, so, so I'm actually not sure that's a, that's a good question, mm. but you know, ultimately they also argued that basically if, the officers are found to have not violated the constitution and are entitled to qualified immunity, then their supervisors are as well. And their supervisors can't really be held liable if these officers themselves aren't, aren't you know, found to have done anything necessarily wrong or unconstitutional. That makes sense. But did, did you notice any tipping of the hat or hand the judge by based on the questions that he was asking the, uh, the attorneys no, there wasn't too much of that. Um, it did ask several questions related it, it kind of around the wondering whether or not if the stop itself was determined to be constitutional, did the parties believe that then, you know, the drawing of the, the weapons, you know, was still at issue and, and the attorneys for, for Bilal and, the, and um, with the ACLU said, Yes, you know, this is still excessive force, even if you find that the stop was reasonable, drawing the weapons was was not. I think attorneys for for the officers basically said, you know, either way, drawing the weapons was wasn't unconstitutional and 
they obviously believe that the stop wasn't wasn't either. Any idea of when that ruling will come down? No, I'm not sure. These things can can kind of often take take a while. So yeah. we'll see. I remember when it happened. I remember we talked about it when it happened. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I think we we did an episode. We on did, it, yeah. yeah. I have one final question, Nick. Any word on what happened with the dog? Actually, that's that's a very good question, and I am not sure. Oh, it's like J101, Nick. <laughs> Where's the I dog? Do know, I do know the dog's name was Duchess. Okay. Oh, um, you need to check on Duchess's life? status. See how Duchess do. is doing. I know. That's a, ma- that's a major oversight. <laughs> that's okay. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. Thank you. listening to Behind the Lens, I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krestel, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Brett Barakar. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org donate. Thank you for your support. All right, Joshua, a nonprofit organization, the Water Collaborative of Greater New Orleans, is proposing an idea to replace the way the current drainage system in New Orleans, which basically runs at a deficit, creating an equity-based stormwater fee they're calling a water justice fund. It's a really cool idea. Tell us what the proposal is. You know, basically, the the idea here is that, um, you know, this this drainage system is is really a remarkable achievement um but it's it's an achievement that is is not getting any younger it's quite old mm-hmm. you know parts of it date back as far as i understand more than 100 years and and you know the sewage and water board um is it has different streams of funding but for the the, the drainage system specifically as far as i understand it it's it's uh, it, it gets its funding through property taxes. The problem with that, you could say, is that you know not every, not everyone pays uh, property taxes, and, and maybe there's some um, some inequity there in terms of uh, who actually is 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 um, you know the, the the tax base responsible for. Um, that revenue. And, and so um, you, you could think of different categories of property owners that are exempt from property taxes, generally speaking, like nonprofits or governmental agencies, etc. And so this idea is, um, is one that kind of challenges, you know, the public to reimagine a, a funding source that could maybe have some more equity built into it and, and kind of broaden what, what they're calling, you know, a democratization of this, of, of this revenue source. So that's, that's kind of the idea. And, and like you said, I mean, it's running at essentially a deficit. Uh, the uh, Bureau of, of Governmental Research 
wrote a report in uh, a, a few years ago, I think it was tw uh, 2017, saying that the Sewage and Water Board would need, um, you know, upwards of $54 million a year by 2026 to, to keep this funding stream solvent, if you will. So, yeah. And, you know, obviously the elephant in the room here is that the storms are not getting any less severe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the 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 stakes are the stakes are high you know in living in this this era of climate change as we are and every year is um i mean god knows uh what's what's coming down the pike in terms of you know severe weather events um and you know there's kind of a sense of urgency that this one one might say this this group is is um you know, leading with, I guess, uh, to, to say like, hey, like that's, we really got to get our act together basically. And there's a way to do it that promotes equity even. You you said that it by 2026, they would need $54 million a year, I think. Do you, do you know how much they yeah. have now? What what do they operate with now? You may not want to quote me on this exactly, but I think currently they're, they're taking in like, uh, for this fund specifically, I've actually seen different figures, but I, I think they're taking like 33, 30, in the 30s maybe. So yeah, it's um, significant it, gap. Right. It could it could use some some help here. Okay. And and where are they in the process of of this proposal? So it's it's in the very nascent stages. They had this kickoff event um, last week. And their man, you know, their 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 goal right now is to go out into the community and talk through what they're thinking, you know, their their the principles that they're trying to bring to bear here and to, you know, listen to and incorporate feedback from the community and from the city's leaders and agencies and um, you know, different stakeholders, organizations, nonprofit organizations, et cetera. And the, the goal is that by next year, next June, they'll have something that, um, you know, is, is has, has been a group effort that they can present to the, the city, the city council and, and the mayor and, um, and, and kind of go from there. Okay. They also, in addition to this proposal for a water justice fund, to help with the sewage and water board costs. They're also proposing something about um, green infrastructure projects, and they say those would benefit communities. What are, what are those? Totally. So, um, you know, the, these are all different kinds of projects, infrastructure that is, is meant to ease the burden on the drainage system, essentially. You know, it's like it... Um, if, if you think of the amount of water that comes down in a given storm, you know, if all of that water goes into the system all at once, that's obviously kind of a burden for the system to, to contend with, um, that you're taxing the system with. If, if there's a way to temporarily, you know, trap or divert that water that's coming down, um, with, you know, natural projects like uh, the planting of, of different organisms that absorb that water or, you know, some, some, some of the, you know, low hanging fruit maybe that 
our some of our listeners, I wouldn't be surprised, have um, looked into or are incorporating in their households, like uh, you know, water barrels. All of that infrastructure kind of works towards this goal of managing and uh, you know the prodigious amount of uh, precipitation that New Orleans gets every year. Right. Um, you know, people. For any uh, our listeners, maybe who who don't live in the region, um, you know, maybe the first city metropolitan area that comes to mind when you think of a rainy city is is probably like Seattle or Portland or something in the Pacific Northwest. But New Orleans, New Orleans gets a whole lot of water, whole lot of water every year, uh, and it, I guess it kind of depends on how you measure it. But we're we're towards the top of those lists. There I think some- a lot of it too is the ability of our system to handle that, you know, quick onset capacity and, and we're getting oh. more of those, like you said, severe weather events, but especially, be, especially uh, Josh, one you didn't mention is like permeable concrete and, right. and other reservoirs. I was walking home from Bayou Boogaloo on Saturday night and got caught in like total complete freaking downpour. And the I was walking down Canal Street and the water pouring off of those concrete parking lots was, you know, so much deeper than any other place you were walking where there were yards and, you know, greenage that could could absorb that. So um I th- I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there for small changes on lots and and you know, new infrastructure that goes in, new buildings that go and have to maintain their the water that comes onto their property. They ha- can't be running it can't be running off into the street but you know that wasn't the case uh five ten or maybe not five but 10 20 30 years ago so we have all this concrete in the city that is is overwhelming our drainage system i've seen some in some maybe in i think in rotterdam maybe they have places that that act as catch basins almost and then when that act as that during a downpour, like what you experienced the other night, Marta. And then when they're not being, when they, when it washes away, they're like skate parks, they're, they're, you know, public park facility kind of place thing, things like that seems like would be a natural type of um, infrastructure that could be created. That's very cool. Um, You know, I can see the uh, skate videos you know, from the '90s in a uh, resurgence there, maybe you know, during or directly after a storm, maybe. Right. I like. <laughs> right. Well, so the mayor's office and the um, the city council are saying, "Sure, bring it on." Not every city council uh, member responded uh, to my request for comment. But a few did, and the mayor also responded. The mayor's office also responded, and generally, I, I would characterize it as like, "Hey, we're we're open. Show us what you got. What's what's the proposal? Um, you know, this this is something. This this is not a new idea. You know, this was um, proposed in the '80s and in the '90s, um, and it it didn't pass. So that's kind of mm. the the you know history here." But what's interesting is that in the meantime, there are, there are, you know, cities and municipalities all across the country that have um, implemented these kinds of things. And they, you know, a lot of them, like I was saying before, they, they don't have the same precipitation yields as New Orleans does. So it's, it's just interesting that we were 
one, maybe one of the first, I don't know if this is exactly true, but, you know, talking about this a while ago and never imp implemented it. And then in, in the meantime, other cities have taken this idea and run with it. And uh, it's just, it's an interesting conversation, I guess. Right. All right. Thanks, Josh. You got it. Marta, the board of Lycée Francais Charter School in New Orleans considered a three-year $165,000 contract for CEO Chase McLaurin. They approved that with potential for significant annual increases at its board meeting this past week as the school grapples with financial concerns. So I guess first, tell us about the financial concerns that are happening at the school now and what the, the pushback was for this pretty hefty salary package. Yeah, so I mean, Lise is not unique in facing enrollment challenges, right? We've um, the, the city projected, at, you know, enrollment growth in the student population, um, and the the district kind of ran with that. Um, and although Lise is a state-run charter school, not a um, city-run charter school, you know, it still obviously draws many of its students from the city. And when we had more schools than we needed obviously schools are kind of, you know, fighting over students who are, you know, uh, come with per pupil funding. So that's right. the funding mechanism. And Lise has lost students over the last few years. So while they are trying to grow and growing into a, you know, a 12, a K through 12 school, this is, will be their, this year is their first graduating class. Um, they've been losing students. Are they losing students? Do you know, because of, um, the lack of interest in the the curriculum offered there because of the grade that the school is getting. What's what's happening? It's a B rated school, so I, I don't think academic um, progress is a concern okay. or much of a concern there. I do think um, some of those schools that have language requirements and language focus. I think some kids, you know, kind of matriculate out of over time just if they don't want to focus on that language or if they're having trouble picking up on that language, you know, I think that can be a challenge for schools with a language focus. Um, but other than that, I couldn't tell you why their enrollment uh, was declining. <laughs> other than I think, you know, that's just kind of something that we've seen across the board. But, you know, they the Chase McLaren, the CEO, basically, uh, he proposed kind of a financial restructuring plan earlier this year to address some of these budget concerns. Yeah. And that included cutting busing for students in sixth grade and older, which is a pretty substantial impact for, for families to hear something like that. So then I think, you know, when families and staff saw this contract come out, uh, they were, um, you know, had some questions. Right. That probably went over like a ton of bricks, I would imagine. We're going we're gonna to help the financial situation by not providing transportation. Apparently, uh, I, I wasn't able to make it to that meeting, but uh, some of the uh, students suggested he could uh, use bus tokens instead of the proposed $6,000 car allowance in, in the contract. Because oh, <laughs> very nice. They would ship to bus tokens for students. Yeah. So Chase McLaren is, is a new CEO there. He was appointed last summer. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And his, his predecessor... Made how much? I'm just curious about the salary, uh, the parity. I believe she was making 179, but you know, I don't know, I don't know the exact circumstances of that. I think she was installed in a kind of a a quick manner when they had some turnover, and I believe there may have been um, some raises that were given out under questionable circumstances. You know, mm. I I can't remember this all for sure. And I'm, I'm sorry that I can't speak better to that. That's just, 
kind of the narrative that I remember. So, you know, previous CEOs were not making that much is what I can tell you. And some, some of those CEOs were hired years ago. So, you know, it, um, wages increasing over time would be a factor, but right. uh, still a significant difference. And the range of salaries is, uh, it all probably also depends on the enrollment size, but roughly the range of salaries is, is what? Right. So this is a K through 12 school with about a thousand students and a, a proposed or now approved salary for um, $165,000 for the CEO. Meanwhile, you look at um, KIPP, which is one of the biggest uh, or one of the biggest charter networks in the city, if not the biggest um, charter network, and their CEO uh, makes $206,000. That's for 6,200 students. So what was the tenor of the meeting? Hearing from parents and staff, again, I wasn't able to make it, but um, uh, there was a, a lot of pushback, it sounded like, um, and concerns about, you know, if you're taking away things like student busing or proposing to, and, um, you know, staff also complaining about uh, freezes in wages and things like that, then, it you know, it really doesn't come off well to your constituents when you're approving a contract like that. Right. Not a bad vocation, being a school superintendent. A discussion you will hear a lot in this city is, you know, what has happened in, in a decentralized school system where there are now so many more levels of management and layers of management and the salaries of those managing um, very, very small schools compared to an entire district of 44,000 students um, and the comparisons of those salaries. So right. it, it, it's definitely a conversation topic has been and it will continue to be. An average teacher salary, I imagine, is 40. I also don't know that off the top of my head, but I can tell you it's not 165,000. <laughs> right. Okay, Marta, thank you. Thank you. All right, you guys, have a good week. All righty. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, Nick Crastel, Joshua Rosenberg, Marta Jusen and Brett Barakar. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>